Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Quick update before we start the show. Himalaya has extended the 30-day free offer on the Box of Oddities premium channel. So if you want to check out the premium content and support the Box of Oddities, you can check it out for free for the first 30 days using promo code BOX. You can find the link on our website, theboxofoddities.com or your Himalaya app. For a limited time. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We book more shows, and I'm already overwhelmed, and I don't know what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, Here's an update, everybody. Um, I'm so excited. Okay, we've got the four-show mini Halloween tour. Right. And then we booked a show for, was it January 30th? That's right, in D.C. In D.C., at the D.C. Comedy Loft, and we just booked a show for... Of all days, and this is perfect, February 29th. It's a it's a leap year, so the 29th seemed like an odd day, so perfect for an odd show. Very excited. We're going to be in Bridgeport, Connecticut at the historic Bijou Theater. This is such a cool place. It is the longest continuously running movie house in the nation. Yeah, 1909. <laughs> Is when it opened, and it's so cool. it's a beautiful historic uh, theater. Samantha, one of our our freaks from that area, sent us a, an email and said, "Hey, we would like to have you guys come here. I know the owner. Can I put you in touch?" And we said, "Sure." And then we looked at the venue, and we went, "We went, yes, we want to play there. That's pretty cool." And uh, and so it all worked out, and we will be in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is, from what I understand, about sixty miles outside of New York City. Okay, and that will be on. February 29th this coming year, and we'll uh, have tickets on sale before you know it. And and same with the Washington, D.C. show. We'll get those up on the website very quickly. We very much look forward to not at all living up to the uh, standards that that uh, beautiful theater usually holds. Yeah, this could be horribly disappointing for all involved. (laughs) (laughs) Really, it is beautiful. It's, It's lovely. 
Again, you can uh, keep up to date with all of the live shows, the merch. Right. The... Only the. I'm sorry. Don't. I mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. My bad. That's okay. Okay. I, and again, I'm you... still. I'm going to keep talking now. The 2020 shows are not on sale yet. No, they're not. But they will be soon. Yes. And you can just keep checking the uh, the boxofoddities.com website. Uh, we'll be updating it periodically, and of course, we'll let you know the minute that they do go on sale, both on the podcast and the social meds. All right, you go first. Oh, okay. Today we're going to talk about the Radium Girls. The Radium Girls. So, radium. Radium in the form of radium chloride was discovered by uh, Marie and Pierre Curie in 1898. They extracted the radium compound and uh, published the discovery at the French Academy of Sciences five days later. It was a big deal. And uh, radium was formerly used in self-luminous paints for watches, uh, nuclear panels, aircraft switches, clocks, and lots of instrument dials. Um, because of the, the, the magic that is radium, uh, it, it's illuminative. Yeah, it's, it's, a it's glowy, glowy. Fluorescenty. So <laughs> it, um, you know, it was neat. And, of course, this is the time where all the things that are new and neat and modern are very highly sought after. And things are just being powered through. It's like, this is neat. Let's sell it to everyone, and right? put it everywhere, regardless of the fact that we have not tested this. Right. And, and even if we did, we probably don't have the sensitive equipment and, uh, and testy things that we would need in order to, uh, to do it effectively. That's right ineffective, testy things. Mm -hmm. So during World War I, hundreds of young women uh, went to work in clock factories. Uh, now, this is according to BuzzFeed. So dial painting was one of the elite jobs for poor working girls. It paid more than three times the average factory job. And those who were lucky enough to land the position ranked in the top 5% of female workers nationally. What year was this or what time period? Well, it was not long after 1911 when radium was was okay. first introduced to to us as a thing, but during World War One. Okay. So many of the girls were teenagers. They had tiny little hands, which were perfect for the artistic work that they were doing. And they, of course, spread the news of this money making opportunity to their friends and their family. And uh, often, like whole sets of siblings would work alongside each other in the studio. Uh, painting was done by women at three different sites in the United States. And the first was a radium factory in New Jersey. So the dial painters had a very specific way of doing their job. They were instructed to lick their brushes oh. to give them a fine point. It was called the lip, dip, and paint approach. And it kept the fine point of the the brush so that they could do that tiny little work on clock faces, what have you. Right. Um, it was called pointing their brushes uh, because if they used rags or a water rinse, uh, it caused them to waste too much time and too much of the material that was made from powdered radium, gum, arabic, and water. Now, since they were told... This was harmless and uh, an okay way to point their brushes. They also, some would paint their fingernails with it. Um, they would paint their face or their teeth 
with the glowing substance. They were referred to as ghost girls because at the end of their shift, they would leave, it would be dark, but they would glow. Ooh, okay. Now, when they were painting their teeth, was that just like kind of a practical joke thing? Like, No. When they went out to like clubs after work, uh they would have these glowing smiles. And of course, you know, it was very interesting to to the boys. And, Uh you know, they, it was, you know, you're going to catch some attention with your glowing teeth, but in a good way. Sure. They were sassy. They were making dollars. They knew it was up. Again, this is uh, from BuzzFeed. So the first thing that we asked, according to Mae Cubberly, was, does this stuff hurt you? And she recalled later, naturally, you don't want to put anything in your mouth that's going to hurt you. So Mr. Savoy, who was the manager for her group, said, of course, it's not dangerous and they needn't be afraid. Now, was he lying or did they really think that it was okay? Okay. So obviously that is not true, but maybe they didn't know, right? Mm. Um, But Curie herself had suffered radiation burns from handling radium while she was in the process of discovering it. And so people had died from radium poisoning before. It was, Mm. you know, it was kind of a interesting catch-22 because they knew that people could die from it. However, there was also this interesting theory, this interesting belief that it was also really good for you. People believed that it was beneficial to their health to drink a little bit in their water, to uh, have cosmetics with a little bit of radium in them. Uh, Butter, milk, toothpaste laced with radium was a thing. Well, it's interesting that you uh, bring this up because the book that you got me, Mm -hmm. uh, the one about um, what it was like to be a person living in the Victorian times, it, it talks a little bit about the process of women would have their faces enameled. Yeah. And part of the enameling involved radium. Oh, really? And lead. Yeah. Yeah. Not great. And it was it was said that if you had a, a, a good enameling job done to make your face look um, perfect, mm. that uh, it would last six months to three years. Oof. They would leave it on for that long. Yeah. That's nuts. No, it's not not good for you. The the theories as to how it became widespread that a little bit of radium was good for you, it's pretty much the people that were selling radium. Pretty mm. much were the ones telling you, <laughs> yeah. yeah, put it in your butter. Yeah, it's, that's it'll, a it'll be good. It's a great idea. It really makes your pancakes come alive. No, <laughs> especially if you're eating them in the dark. Nom 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 nom. So men at the radium companies wore lead aprons while working in while working in the laboratories, <laughs> and they handled the radium with ivory-tipped tongs. But yeah, go ahead and lick that paintbrush; it's fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, of course, early stages of radium poisoning, uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headache, fever, dizziness, disorientation. Weakness and fatigue, hair loss, bloody vomit and stool due to the internal bleeding, necrosis of the jaw, Hmm. eventually death. I imagine that uh, after several of those symptoms have uh, presented themselves, you were probably hoping that death would come along pretty quickly. For sure. So in spite of the knowledge that this this is starting to happen to these girls, people are 
obviously being affected by this, uh, these radium girls, and the fact that a number of similar deaths had occurred by 1925, including the uh, company's chief chemist, Dr. Lehman, and several of the female workers at that particular lab. The U.S. radium and other watch dial companies rejected the claims that the afflicted workers were suffering from exposure to radium. For some time, Doctors, dentists, and researchers complied with their requests not to release the data that was showing these connections. Wow. At the urging of the companies, workers' deaths were largely attributed to syphilis. Wow. So not just, no, this is not what's making these girls sick. Don't trust these girls. Yeah. Because they've got syphilis. They have loose morals. Right? I mean, it was clever for sure. And also fucking evil. It really is. So the woman had to prove that it was, in fact, this that was making them sick. And since they were fighting not just against this company, the, the U.S. radium, they were also fighting against that widespread belief that radium was safe. And... It was only when the first male employee of the radium firm died that experts finally took up the charge. That's, I'd like to say that's shocking. It's not. But it's not. We've heard it over and over again. God. It's only when a dude dies that something's taken seriously. In 1925, a doctor named Harrison Martland devised tests that proved once and for all that radium had poisoned the women. Now, much of this is coming from Wikipedia, from, as I mentioned before, BuzzFeed, and CNN. They had a really interesting article about it. So, Martland discovered that when radium was uh, used internally, even in very small amounts, the damage was like a thousand times greater than if most other chemicals had been ingested. Because what it did was the radium would settle into your body and kind of honeycomb out and spread and would get into your bones. It was literally boring holes inside of these girls. Holy shit. While they were alive, which was what caused the internal bleeding. Mm, mm. So on May 18, 1927, a lawsuit was filed against the U.S. Radium Corporation by Raymond Berry, and that was on behalf of Grace Fryer, along with Edna Hussman, Catherine Schaub, and sisters Quinta McDonald and Albina Loris. They, uh, they joined the case, each asking for $250,000 in compensation. So at their first appearance in court in January of 1928, two women were bedridden, and none of them could raise their arms to take an oath. Mm. A total of five workers, dubbed the Radium Girls, joined the suit. Barry and the five girls agreed on an out-of-court settlement just days before the case was supposed to go to trial. Each girl received $10,000, as well as an additional $600 per year until death, which they knew that it wasn't going to be long before they died anyway. Yeah, they should have taken it all up front. U.S. Radium would also pay all medical and legal expenses in addition to future medical expenses. Now, Barry was not satisfied with the outcome of this trial, and he didn't feel that the victims received the compensation that they deserved. It was later discovered that the judge for the trial was a stockholder in U.S. Radium. Shut up! 
I am so sick of the corruption. It's terrible. Oh, God damn. It's rough, right? So, yes, there was culpability proven. And yes, it did get settled in their favor. No, it maybe wasn't the compensation that they deserved. However, history was made in both the field of health, physics, and the labor rights movement. Mm -hmm. So the right of individual workers to sue for damages from corporations due to labor abuse was established as a result of this Radium Girls case. Okay. Well, that's that's good. It is good. And it did change the way that... um, individuals could interact with the companies that they worked for and what they could expect as far as safety is concerned. That's a remarkable story. It is. And those girls were brave AF because there was so much working against them and they just had to prove that the thing that everyone else thought was safe was actually the thing that was killing them. You mentioned Madame Marie Curie. Yes, her gloriousness. And her gloriousness. Yeah, too. for sure. Um, her diaries and journals that are locked away, of course, in museums are still to this day radioactive to a point that uh, you cannot pick them up. That is what I've heard. Also interesting, Marie Curie is the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, and she was the first person to win two Nobel Prizes. She's the only woman to win in two fields and the only person to win in multiple sciences. She's rad. She's she's just a beast, and I love her. Well, it, it, when you factor in, it, this was during a time when women were frowned upon uh, if they went to school. Yeah. You know, and, and got an education. She's like, I'm going to school you. Mm. Uh, I love her. Golf clap for Marie Curie. And now, that thing in the middle. That thing in the middle. People share their glitches in the matrix. I love these. Number five. I had this crazy vivid dream in seventh grade. I dreamt that there was a white van parked outside my house. A man got out, uh, walked to my house, broke in, went into my brother's room and killed him. I woke up and I freaked out. It was three in the morning. I couldn't sleep. So I went into the kitchen and I turned the light on. A few seconds later, the headlights on a white cargo van outside flipped on and it sped away. Number four, one morning I woke up, rolled out of bed, brushed my teeth, had breakfast as usual, and then went about my day off. I lounged around the house a bit, played my Nintendo DS, and plucked away at my guitar. A lazy morning. Suddenly... I'm driving my car a couple towns over on my way to Barnes & Noble. I pulled over to collect my thoughts. I remembered waking up, getting ready, watering the plants, cleaning up stuff in the living room, and then hopping in my car. But I remembered doing all of the stuff from the other version of that morning. So I had two separate days that suddenly merged into one. And I kept both memories? That is fascinating. Number three, I remember the crash. My dad was T-boned in his green Nissan. I remember telling the police all about it at the scene. I remember my parents telling me to tell the doctors that my neck and chest hurt, even though they didn't. I remember having a week off of school. I remember my dad berating the insurance company over the phone. So a few years ago, when my dad bragged about how he had never been in an accident, I took the smug pleasure of correcting him and reminding everyone about the accident. Everybody looked at me like I was crazy. According to my family, my dad never had a Nissan, and he would never drive a green car because he thinks they're unlucky. And of course, 
There was never an accident. Oh my goodness. I think we all know what happened there. It was Masters of the Universe situation where um, they came back from meeting He-Man and Courtney Cox and <laughs> they made right what once went wrong. Okay. I, I just want to say, since you brought it up, Skeletor was really misunderstood. Absolutely. He just wanted you to enjoy some delicious boysenberry frozen yogurt. About two people understand that, but it was so <laughs> worth it. <laughs> mm. Mm. Can Skeletor mm. suggest mm. poisonberry? <sighs> what are we at? Three? Two? Two. Two. Number two. When I was very young, maybe five or six, I tried to watch a VHS tape of a movie I liked. Nothing but static. I tried my Barney tape, static again. I ejected the tape and called my mom into the room. She inserted the tape and pressed play exactly like I had moments before, and it worked perfectly fine. She just thought I did it wrong. She went back into her room across the hall and immediately, static. I ran into her room to get her, and when we came back, it was playing. No one believed me. That just sounds like probably you've got some sort of VCR issue. That's unreliable 80s technology. Mm. And number one, I was walking on the sidewalk along a busy road when suddenly with one step, the whole damn world changed around me. It was a crazy hot day, but all of a sudden it was cool and cloudy. There were only a few cars on the road and lots of people riding bicycles. I remember seeing a girl in a blue dress out of the corner of my eye. It was so surreal. But with the next step, I was back in the usual reality. Whoa. To this day, I have no idea what happened. That's super fringy. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame and since i can't be there to experience it with her it's the next best thing and speaking of mothers if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life aura frames are beautiful wi-fi connected digital picture frames it allows you to share and display unlimited photos it's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the aura app and here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's a-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. 
Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Picture, if you will, a post-apocalyptic world that has been ravaged by a deadly virus. I want to open this box. Yeah, we got, uh, I'm talking about Earthbreak, which is a great new game. And uh, it comes mailed to your house and we just got our first episode. Open it up. What do we, what do we have in here? Ooh. If you're looking for a unique date or game night that uh, gets you off your devices and into the world, you you gotta check out Earthbreak. It's all about immersive experiences, and they've just announced the launch of their new post-apocalyptic theme subscription box. Earthbreak is a sci-fi game where you're a survivor on a rapidly dying Earth that's been inflicted with a deadly disease. All right, here's the handbook. You receive your box of clues that Kat is going through right now, physical items, and evidence each month. It's up to you to piece it all together and solve the mystery and save humanity. It's been called kind of like an escape room delivered to your door. Ooh, that's a great way to describe it. Or Fallout meets Alien. Earthbreak. Would you survive the alien apocalypse? And right now, uh, for our listeners, you can go to earthbreak.com slash box for 25% off your first box. Now, here's the thing. They only accept 200 subscribers per day. So you got to hurry. Take advantage of the offer. Earthbreak.com slash box for 25% off your first box. Earthbreak.com slash box. Can you survive the alien apocalypse? No. Okay. Can you survive? (laughs) You're ruining it. Okay. 
Can you survive the alien apocalypse? Earthbreak.com slash box. <laughs> this is the Box of Oddities. I said box. We love getting messages from you on the various social meds. And uh, we got this message from Never Indoors on Instagram. Hey, guys, I'm a police officer in Calgary, Alberta, and Vaseline Alley is in my patrol area. Shut up. Yes. Vaseline Alley is a real thing. They're usually small containers, neatly stacked on the median, and then blown around by the wind. But I think at this point, it's just one of those self-perpetuating stories where people just want to be a part of the Vaseline movement in Calgary, <laughs> just like you said. Love your show. Well, we love you. Yeah. Never indoors. Yes. <laughs> that just blows my mind. Mm. You know, when we talk about a story and then somebody who actually lives in the neighborhood. Right. You know, like the guy last time that uh, lives in the neighborhood of, uh, what's his name, Dill. The guy that got arrested for uh, the decades-old murder. That's right. Or when we're all like, hey, we'd love to hear from someone in Brazil. And the next day, it's all like, I'm from Brazil. And also, I'm wearing the same shirt as you. It's like, <laughs> what? How is this a thing? Uh, let me adjust my creaky chair. Oh. Oh, I had a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, what you got for me? Oh, well, here's what I got for you. In the summer of 1912, it was a really, really hot summer, sweltering, and especially in the southern part of the United States, particularly Louisiana. There, of course, was no air conditioning in 1912 and very few ways to keep cool. So most people, what they would do is they would uh, they would stay outdoors. They would sit under, uh, almost said shit under uh, shady trees. They no, might. Shit, sit under shady trees. Shh. It, sit under shady trees. Great job. Thanks. Or they would go to the local swimming hole. Of course. Go swimming. Now, there was a family that lived in Louisiana. Louisiana. You can say it however you uh, want, I guess. I've always, like growing up, it was Louisiana. Mm. Um, but then, you you know, people from there might say Louisiana. Uh, something of that nature. I don't know. I just want to be respectful, that's all. I think that um, considering the the accent, it might be something along the lines of Louisiana. No. Louisiana. You sound like the Lucky Charms leprechaun <sighs> with a cold sore. <sighs> Any hoozle. There was a family of four that lived there, and <laughs> their name was Dunbar. Okay. The Dunbar family. The Dunbars from Louisiana. Leslie and Percy Dunbar, they had two boys, the oldest of which was Bobby Dunbar. He was born in 1908. That little scamp, Bobby, Bobby Dunbar. Dunbar. The word is that they cherished their two boys, that this was a loving, supportive family. Uh-oh, there's a but. Uh, we'll Did get... they kill their babies? Uh, oh, man, they killed their babies, didn't they? They did not kill their babies. Oh, okay, fine. On August 23rd in 1912, they decided that they were going to take their kids on a camping trip okay. to a lake because it was cooler. Oh, no. Did they drown them? They No, they did not. Okay. They did nothing wrong th okay. that I'm aware of. Okay. So they pack up their uh, camping gear. <laughs> am, am I doing too many of these stories recently <laughs> where I'm like, oh, no, what happened to these babies? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Packed up the camping gear. And they headed north to the city of Opelousas. 
toward what was um, called Swayze Lake. <gasps> Sounds, After Patrick Swayze, absolutely. S- sounds lovely, doesn't sure. it? Sure. Swayze yeah. Lake. Mm-hmm. Not really so much a lake as a uh, alligator-infested swamp. Oh, no. Yeah. It was crawling with alligators. But they were from Louisiana and were familiar mm-hmm. with the surroundings and knew how to you know, be relatively safe. Sure. Not disturb the alligators. Don't mess with the alligators. No. So on that night, again, August 23rd, 1912, they finished their dinner. They uh, had a nice little campfire. They have tents. They went into their tents and they went to sleep. Sometime during the night, Bobby wandered away. He's four years old. The next morning, the family woke up. Bobby's gone. All they find is his hat next to the lake. Ooh, that's ominous. Obviously, they were horrified. And uh, this launched an eight-month Search for Bobby Dunbar. According to History 101, a Louisiana newspaper called the Caldwell Watchman wrote in 1914, quote, Bobby was missed. When he was missed, a search traced him to the banks of Lake Swayze. At first, it was feared that he had been drowned, but the lake failed to give up the body, and the little boy's hat was found some distance from the lake a day or so later. The town was deeply upset about this because the Dunbars were a beloved family. So the search continues, and the father, Percy, put up a $1,000 reward. Oh, wow. Which was a lot of That's money then. Sturdy. It's about twenty five grand in today's money. And the town pitched in another 5000 So it was about $125,000 in today's money. But time went on. Months and months and months went on. And the family was getting discouraged, obviously. <gasps> what? I think I know this story. Okay, go ahead. Then on April 13th, 1913, authorities arrested a guy. Uh, he was a, I love this, he was a traveling tinker. We, we don't have many of those anymore, traveling tinkers. His name was William Cantwell Walters, and they arrested him near Columbia, Missouri. Uh, he was traveling with a boy that matched Bobby Dunbar's description. Mm-hmm. Same age, blonde hair, blue eyes. And they, they were pretty sure it was Bobby. So they put him on a train to Opelousas. So the boy shows up and the authorities take the boy to the house and the parents, you would think, would be overjoyed. Mm-hmm. Hey, their son's coming back. Well, the, the issue at first was that uh, the Dunbars didn't recognize yeah. the little boy, their so-called son. It's not Bobby. And this begins the curious case in the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar. Now, after a little while... The Dunbars were able to positively identify the child. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I guess, were able to identify marks. And so they determined that it was their little boy. News spread about town that uh, Bobby was home. Everybody was overjoyed. Bobby's but not home. Also, the news spread that uh, they weren't really sure if it was Bobby at first. But then all of a sudden, like, yeah, no, that's him. Sure, yeah, it's Bobby. It's not That is an alligator disguised as Bobby. That would be a shocking reveal. (laughs) He unzips his Bobby suit and it's an alligator. (laughs) So the guy who was arrested for kidnapping, uh, his name was Walter, uh, William Walters. This is a capital offense. Now, he was arrested and he claimed that the kid was the child of his brother and a servant's illegitimate son. The mother of the boy, according to him, was a woman named Julia Anderson. 
and uh, she had given Walters permission to take the boy with him on his travels. The Los Angeles Times noted that Walters tried to clear his name saying, quote, I know by now you have decided you are wrong. It is very likely I will lose my life on account of that. And if I do, the great God will hold you accountable. So much is weird about that. I mean, it's not like Bobby was missing for that long. And you should be able to positively identify him. Also, why are you just letting some randomite take your kid on a cross-country tootle? Yeah, well, it didn't matter what uh, what Walter said. The jury didn't buy it. Uh, he was convicted of kidnapping. And then Julia Anderson shows up unexpected and pretty much verifies and substantiates Walter's story that this was This actually, is my alligator. No, it's not an alligator. It was her son, she said, whose name was Bruce. But when they asked her to identify the boy, she too was uncertain. She looked at him and went, um, I'm not. I'm not really sure, but I think, yeah, I think that's Bruce. All so right. you've got two mothers. They both are pretty sure that uh, it's their son, but neither one of them are 100% sure. So the lesson learned here is that in 1912, not a lot of parents really looked at their kids much. So pretty much the same thing that happened with the Dunbars happened with uh, with Anderson. She at first said she could not identify the boy. She was uncertain that the boy was hers. But upon closer inspection, she said with confidence that the boy was hers. Both mothers weren't really sure <laughs> what the hell was going on. Seems right. So, I don't know. He's got awfully sharp teeth, though. It's weird. And his skin is so rough. Well, the press got in on it, and uh, they, the local press, they, I think, were rooting for the Dunbars, and so they started talking about Anderson as being a woman of loose morals and yep. discredited her claims. Probably she had syphilis. So she was <laughs> tried in a court of public opinion, and uh, when that happened, she just left and went back to Mississippi, and she left the boy to the Dunbars. Let's flash forward about 100 years. Okay. Margaret Dunbar Cutright grew up hearing this story about her grandfather, Bobby Dunbar. And the way, of course, the family told it was that the boy, Margaret's grandfather, was indeed Bobby Dunbar. Mm -hmm. One day in uh, the late 90s, actually, I think 1999, Margaret Dunbar's father, Bob Dunbar Jr., gave her a photo album. And in it were a bunch of clippings of newspaper articles from the day about her grandfather's disappearance. That's and his... such a neat thing to have. I know. So she began pouring through these clippings, and it really just ignited uh, an interest in finding out everything she could about her family history. Yes, Lucy Sleuth. And she began to question the narrative that had been handed down through generations. So she became obsessive. She went all over the place uh, to courthouses and small town libraries and found everything that she could find. Now, on the other side of the story, Linda Traver, she's the granddaughter of Julia Anderson. In all her life, she'd been told that her uncle had been uh, kidnapped by the Dunbar family and had been raised as a Dunbar, but he was really Bruce Anderson. Mm-hmm. And she had heard the story about uh, the Dunbar's child going missing on a camping trip. 
and that that was what most people had accepted as true, but she had lingering doubts as well. Sure. Again, we're talking almost 100 years later. So they decided, these two women, Linda Traver and Margaret Dunbar Cutright, formed an alliance. Yes! Badass bitches working together. I love it. Their goal was to figure out what really happened in 1913. The reality was that Margaret wanted to prove her family story. Linda wanted to prove her family story sure. to be real. As the investigation between the two progressed, tensions began to rise mm-hmm. between these two women, and, and it eventually erupted into a full-on feud between the families. Sure. These well, two families were right at it all the time. They've got a lot invested in it. It's their family's history. Yes, yes. Yeah. But they still soldiered on working together. They uncovered an anonymous letter sent to the courthouse in the defense of William Walters, and it was just simply signed, The Christian Woman. It said, Dear Sir, in view of human justice to Julia Anderson and mothers, I am prompted to write to you. I sincerely believe the Dunbars have Bruce Anderson and not their boy. If this is their child, why are they afraid of anyone to see or interview him privately? So at this point, Margaret said, quote, It just simply dawned on me, oh my God, she could be right. What a farce. What a farce this is. It was time to settle the mystery once and for all. So she goes to her dad, Bob Dunbar Jr., mm-hmm. whose father, of course, was Bobby Dunbar, right. and asked him for a DNA sample. This was two, uh, 2003. Now, she had asked her dad for a DNA test many times over a period of a couple of few years, and every time he said, no, no way, no. There's no need to do so. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing it. But after four years of digging... And sharing what she has found with Bob Jr., this time he said yes. So in 2003, she sent a sample of her dad's DNA to a laboratory. A month went by. Can you imagine waiting on this? And then finally, they got the results back. Now, they had done DNA samples of Bobby's younger brother, Alonzo, Mm -hmm. to compare it to, as well as somebody from the Anderson family. The DNA samples did not match his brother. Her grandfather was not the same Bobby Dunbar who had gone missing in the swamp. He was, in fact, Julia Anderson's missing son, Bruce Anderson. Now, the the Dunbar family, not only were they shocked by this, mm. but they were pissed off at her for, for doing... A lot of them didn't want her to do the DNA testing. They didn't want her to investigate. They didn't even know... We she, hate the truth. Yeah, well, they had. she said she was going to do this, and they all said, don't do it. And But she quietly went and did it anyway. And so they were pissed because it was like behind their back. Well, and now because, everything... I'm that, sorry, it's reality. Get over it. Everything that they believed to be true was now being questioned. Eh. It was a shock to the family. Listen, there was a what would you do a couple of weeks ago involving a girl who did a DNA test and she found out that her dad was not her biological dad. And her biological dad was a sperm donor. So, you know, it's not like there's another dude in the picture. It's just, you know, dad and mom had a little bit of a thing and they weren't sure how to tell her and all. But he'd been there all along. And the the sweet people in this diner that we're overhearing and sticking their noses in their business were like, it doesn't matter. He was there for you. He was a parent to you. And then there was hugging and there were tears and it was really nice. What I'm saying is that family's not about your DNA. Family is about being there for each other and supporting each other and not being alligators. 
<laughs> so when the son of Bobby Dunbar got the news that his father was not a Dunbar, he said, quote, it took my breath away. You know, I hadn't considered that. I, I imagine he probably did. Uh, my thought was to prove that daddy was Bobby Dunbar. Margaret said, if my past is wrong, Bobby Dunbar, all the legends, all the stories, and then all of a sudden you find out, well, that's not who your blood says you are. Where does that leave me? If my grandpa isn't my grandpa, who am I? So a lot of the Dunbar family really upset by this. And from what I understand, according to this article in History 101, the feud amongst the Dunbars is still happening today. A lot of her family hasn't forgiven her. For well, this. that's insane because she was just looking for the truth. And I'm sorry, if the truth is that upsetting to you, then maybe you need to deal with the reality of the situation and not the person who discovered the reality. That's just, that's childish is what it is. Yeah. You know what? That's some cold-blooded shit. Alligator. I get it. So Margaret and her father, bless their hearts, delivered the news to Linda Travers and her family themselves. Mm -hmm. Quote, I got up from where we were sitting on the couch and I went around and I think I just hugged his neck, just knowing that, man, we're family. We're just family. That, of course, Linda. To this day, the descendants of Julia Anderson, they look at the Dunbars as friends. Oh. And expect nothing more or less. And while the identity of the boy who had been traveling with Walters has been officially confirmed, there are still tons of other questions out there. What happened to the real Bobby Dunbar? Right. Was he eaten by an alligator? There was an article that was written years after the incident where um, it was right about the time the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped, mm -hmm. where some reporters went and found Bobby and asked him, he was like 18 at the time, okay. or you know who they thought was Bobby, tell us about your experience. And there were a few things that were interesting. One was that he was traveling, he remembers traveling with this man. But this man had another boy with him the same age. Ooh. And that that boy died and the old man got rid of him somehow while they were traveling on the, you know, with this traveling tinker. Mm -hmm. So there is a theory out there that this guy, maybe even though he was ultimately he was acquitted, kidnapped both of these boys and Bobby Dunbar had died, and then this boy was mistaken for Bobby Dunbar. Right. Anyway, that's the uh, story of Bobby Dunbar. Wow. Yeah. I have heard of that story. I didn't. I was not aware of the update where it was discovered that, you know, he really wasn't the Bobby Dunbar. Um, so that is that is fascinating. That's a really fun story to sink your teeth into. It's amazing that uh, it just kind of languished out there for nearly a hundred years you know people just kind of told right. their own version of it and but it was obviously something that was an important part of both families history and lore and finally they get some answers yeah it's quite the tale again we're looking forward to any of you who can make some of our live shows let me run them down quickly for you please do october 16th san francisco cobb's comedy club October 27th, Laugh Boston in Boston. October 29th, Comedy Zone in Charlotte, North Carolina. October 30th, Halloween Eve will be at Zany's Comedy Nightclub in Nashville. Then the first of the year, 
January 30th at the Comedy Loft in D.C. And on Leap Year Day, what is the official term for that? Leap Day? Leap Day, is it? I don't know. Leap Day? Yeah. February 29th, we're going to be at the historic Bijou Theater in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Please join us. We would love to see you. All of the information will be either is on our website or will be updated soon. Theboxofoddities.com. We enjoyed hanging out with you and we look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books. As I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.